0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. We've we'll come today from the David Pagman Show, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The David Feldman Show, and The Majority Report. And a note for our female listeners, I just want to remind you to breathe. Don't forget to breathe.
1: And lastly, there is a bill in the House known as HR 358, or the Protect Life Act. I don't have to tell you which party is sponsoring it, and this would actually allow hospitals to let women die instead of having an abortion. The backstory refers to a 1986 law known as EMTALA, E-M-T-A-L-A, which requires providing emergency care to anyone who comes into hospitals. In the case of an anti-abortion hospital with a patient requiring an emergency abortion, ETMALA. Or rather, MTALA would require that the hospital perform it or transfer the patient somewhere uh, that they, it can be performed. The new bill, H.R. 358, would free hospitals from that requirement under MTALA. Very, very dangerous. A question for you, Lewis. If personhood really does begin at conception, shouldn't the child tax credit also begin at conception rather than after birth? I guess that would only be fair, right? It sounds fair to me. That's like an extra nine months there. That could help a lot of people. It could. It really could.
2: And you can see he believes still in me to believe
3: in more than this, in more than this. A Wisconsin Planned Parenthood Clinic was attacked with a homemade bomb uh... the bomb went off at about seven thirty p.m. last night thankfully no one was injured there was no one at the office uh... and also we don't know who left the device. the device but this is an ongoing trend in the country right now as more and more uh... extreme legislators continue to pass these anti-abortion bills or at least propose these anti-abortion bills right-wingers in the country became become more and more motivated to do crazy things like this And it's a little ironic that someone who describes themselves as a pro-life would attempt to hurt other people with a homemade bomb.
4: Right. Now, again, we don't know who planted it yet, uh, but there's a part of the story that's driving me crazy. It's being minimized by a lot of the media so far, uh, because one, no one got hurt. Well, thank God no one got hurt, but it's a bomb either way, right? And then it's kind of weirdly downplaying a bomb. And number two, some of the stories are like, well, it's a homemade bomb. Oh, yeah. What does that matter? Like, when is the last time you saw a a story about a Muslim terrorist doing a bombing, but there's a sentence that goes, but it's a homemade bomb. Like as if like, oh, okay, that makes it much better. And I think that what's partly what's happening here is, you know, part of it is natural. Hey, no one got hurt, so it's not as large a story. Okay, thank God, right? Another part of it is well, we don't want to call it domestic terrorism. No one calls it domestic but terrorism. But that's
3: exactly what it is. If this isn't domestic terrorism, what is? It's we a freaking bomb, bomb. that they, they
4: planted to kill someone it, for a political position that they don't agree with, and they wanted to terrorize that side. That's exactly what it is. It's domestic terrorism. But if you do that, oh, we're taking sides. But it, wait a minute. When you, but you, every time it's a Muslim, everybody goes screaming from the rooftops: terrorism. That's not taking sides. But it, oh my God, if a right winger does it, God forbid we should actually call it what it is.
3: Look, minimizing this story. It has severe consequences because this is not an isolated incident. This is something that's actually happening in other states in the country. So, as I mentioned, um, this is something that happened in Wisconsin. However, uh, there is a state senator by the name of Wendy Davis in Texas, and her office was attacked, you know, just a few weeks ago with a firebomb. And thankfully, no one was hurt in that situation either. Turns out that one of the employees there uh, heard a thud at the door, opened the door, and noticed that there was a small fire at the entrance. Mm-hmm. Okay, he took the ext- and thankfully, you know, the fire was out and no one got hurt. But these are attacks that need to be taken seriously. Because if you don't take it seriously and if there aren't harsh consequences for these kinds of things, then what happens? It just continues. People feel like they're invincible and they can do whatever they want.
4: In one of the cases, they think it was a Molotov cocktail, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you start throwing Molotov cocktails around and you start planting bombs, whether they're homemade or not, is somebody going to get hurt eventually? Of course, of course. And you know what? To Anna's point in the beginning, it's not just the legislation that's being passed against abortion, et cetera. Along with it comes tremendous propaganda and hype. Oh my God, these are baby killers, and et cetera, et cetera. And then it's to the point where it drives people who are already unstable, and that's what you have to worry about. I mean, you don't, for your own side, you don't have to worry that the 99 percent of the people who are listening to you are going to go crazy and start throwing bombs around. But you do have to be concerned that there are some unstable folks, and if you keep saying, "Hey, baby killer, baby killer, baby killer," somebody's going to go, "Oh my God, I got to stop the baby killer by murdering," and ironically be in the pro-life position.
3: Look, that's why Tiller is dead let's keep it real that's why he was gunned down um, and you know that's why when you have these right wing organizations publishing lists of doctors that has detailed information as to where you can find that doctor where that doctor lives that's why it's so problematic because they're inciting violence they're basically telling people like here are the baby killers here's where you can find them if you want to use a molotov cocktail and we're not telling you to do that we're just giving you guys the information
4: and and bill o'reilly is the as Anna's example is pointing out called Dr. Tiller Tiller the baby killer over and over again on his program and then after he was shot by someone who thought he was a baby killer said why well, I can't believe it. it's outrageous that anyone would point out what I said as the reason he might have gotten shot except for the fact that you know it's not he's not solely responsible and of course the guy who did the shooting is ultimately responsible but can you not see that that might have incited him can you at least not pause and go hey you know what Maybe I should be a little bit more careful because look at one of the possible results that I at least in some way contributed to. No, but the guy has no off button. Evil has no off button. Right? So he's like, let's just plow forward
3: you know i looked up some numbers uh... to find statistics on the number of hate crimes uh... directed toward you know abortion clinics uh... clinics that not only do abortion but have other services as well i found out some pretty shocking statistics since nineteen seventy seven there have been over fifty nine thousand acts of violence at u.s. abortion clinics seven murders three hundred forty three death threats which i think is actually pretty low uh... considering all the number of uh, Acts of violence and also nine hundred forty-two acts of vandalism, and these are all uh, numbers cited by the National Organization for Women.
4: Okay, so that's really interesting mm-hmm. because whenever the right wing does uh, an act of domestic ter- terrorism, they it's, it's a lone person; doesn't count." So you know, for Muslims, they're all part of this uh, global Islamic jihad conspiracy, right? Uh, but when right wing does it, it's not coordinated. Fifty-nine thousand attacks. At what point do you call it coordinated? At what point do you say, hey, you know what? Maybe they're all doing it because of their ideology against the same target, which would make it in the same exact sense that the global Islamic Jihad is coordinated, certainly coordinated, and definitely terrorist.
3: And finally, you know, when we talk about this anti abortion legislation, I just want to show you what the trend is. Because a lot of people will deny that there's this war on women, but when you look at the numbers and the number of anti abortion legislation that's being proposed in recent years, you're seeing this huge jump. So I'll give you an example. Legislators introduced more than 1,100 provisions last year that chip away at women's reproductive rights. According to the Guttmacher Institute, uh, and it enacted 135 of them by the year's end. By contrast, there was 89 of these provisions enacted in 2010, 77 in 2009, and only 34 in 2005 under George W. Bush.
4: So the anti-choice, anti-woman legislation is you know, uh, tr- increasing tremendously and uh now all of a sudden some of the bombing seems to have picked up as well. And you know, go out there, a uh, little fun game for you guys see how many of the media outlets actually call it a case of terrorism. Let alone how many media outlets even cover it. My guess is there's gonna be very, very few that call it domestic terrorism. And I don't know what else you would call a bombing that's ideologically driven. Dead
5: sweat in my teeth, gonna walk, walk, walk. Four more blocks plus the one in my brain. Down, downstairs to the man, he's gonna make it all okay, I can't myself. I can't be myself and I don't want to talk. I'm taking the cure so I can be quiet wherever I want. So leave me alone. You ought to be proud that I'm getting
6: There are two big political stories in Wisconsin today, right? One is today's Republican presidential primary, which has been won by Mitt Romney. The other, of course, is the recall election for Republican Governor Scott Walker, which is scheduled for June along with recall elections for his Republican Lieutenant Governor and for a handful of Republican state senators. Uh, But beyond those two big overarching political stories in Wisconsin, there's something else going on in a very different type of Wisconsin politics right now that I think is worth keeping an eye on. Police in a place called Grand Chute, Wisconsin, which is near Appleton, uh, say somebody placed a homemade explosive device on an outside windowsill of the local Planned Parenthood clinic on Sunday night. A small fire broke out when the device exploded, but it had burned itself out by the time fire crews arrived on the scene. Now, the FBI is reportedly helping local authorities with this investigation. Since the clinic was closed at the time, nobody was in the building when the device exploded. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin says there was minimal damage to an exam room, and they say that the clinic has already been reopened. Today, local police in Grand Chute say they arrested a suspect in this bombing. Grand Chute police saying today that the arrest was actually made last night, but no charges have been filed. Meanwhile, at the federal courthouse in Madison, Wisconsin, a grand jury has handed down felony indictments against a man accused of having traveled from his home in Marshfield, Wisconsin, to Madison with the intent of killing doctors at Madison's Planned Parenthood clinic. The man's name is Ralph Lang. He was arrested in May, nearly a year ago, after he accidentally discharged a gun in his motel room. The bullet passed through the front door of his room and then it crossed the hall and went through the front door of another room in the hotel he was staying in. According to the federal complaint filed against him, when police arrived and asked him why he had a gun, Mr. Lang told them that the next day, he planned to go to the Madison Planned Parenthood clinic with his gun, quote, to lay out abortionists because they are killing babies. He said he was uh, planning on going to the Planned Parenthood the next morning when it opened and that he was going to find out who the doctor was and shoot him in the head. When asked if his plan was only to shoot the doctor, he said he wished he could, quote, line them all up in a row, get a machine gun and mow them all down. Mr. Lang told authorities he thought everyone in the Planned Parenthood building should be executed. Those were Ralph Lang's beliefs and his plans, plans that were interrupted when he was loading his gun and it accidentally went off, thus, introducing the room across the hall to one of Ralph Lang's bullets. In addition to the federal charges that came down a few days ago against Mr. Lang, he was already facing state charges of attempted first degree intentional homicide. The specter of violence and intimidation being used against abortion providers in Wisconsin, in in part because of the timing of the Sunday night Planned Parenthood bombing just before the presidential primary there, Uh, it has made extremism in the anti-abortion movement a small part of the context of Wisconsin's Republican presidential contest. For his part, Rick Santorum released a statement condemning Sunday's Planned Parenthood bombing, but he paired that statement condemning the violence uh, with his own continued political attacks on Planned Parenthood. The statement said, quote, while we can and should work to defund Planned Parenthood and push back against government mandates that force Americans and religious institutions to violate their faith, violence against our fellow citizens has no place in freedom-loving America. So Rick Santorum, using the opportunity of the bombing of a Planned Parenthood clinic to inveigh against what he thinks is wrong with Planned Parenthood. And that is what you call classy with a K. Most of the attention on Wisconsin politics lately has been focused on Scott Walker's union-busting law, that being the reason Scott Walker is poised to become the first Wisconsin governor to be recalled from office ever. But even though the focus has been on the union rights issue, rolling back access to abortion has also been a major priority for Wisconsin Republicans under Scott Walker. Wisconsin Republicans were on the cutting edge of the defund Planned Parenthood trend. They passed a budget eliminating state and federal funding for Planned Parenthood clinics last summer. At the moment, a bill putting new restrictions on how non-surgical abortions can be administered in the state, forcing doctors to conduct state-mandated counseling of women seeking abortions. Uh, That bill is awaiting Governor Walker's signature right now. It's already passed the Republican-led legislature. The Wisconsin Medical Society, the state's largest medical association, has asked Governor Walker to veto that bill, saying it would infringe on the physician-patient relationship. The Medical Association says they're also concerned that doctors who fail to follow the bill exactly could face felony charges. They could go to prison. The legislature also passed a bill banning private insurance plans that are part of health insurance exchanges from covering abortion. They also passed a bill removing... Excuse me, a bill removing... A bill that would remove information on contraception from sex-ed curriculum in the state and requiring schools to teach abstinence as the only way to prevent pregnancy and STDs was also moved in the state. There was also a personhood bill introduced in the Wisconsin legislature this session, an effort to amend the state constitution to define a fertilized egg as a person, thereby banning abortion and likely hormonal birth control as well. Scott Walker, the embattled Republican governor, has not indicated yet whether he will sign the uh, anti-abortion bill, the anti-sex ed bills uh, that have already passed through the legislature on the strength of Republican majorities. But it should be known that Scott Walker is a man with solid and long-standing credentials in anti-abortion politics. It's how he started in politics. He led an anti-abortion group when he was in college at Marquette University. He's against all abortion in all cases, including in the cases of rape, and incest, if you become impregnated by virtue of rape or by virtue of incest, Scott Walker believes the government should force you to bear the child that is the result of that pregnancy. Scott Walker was endorsed in his run for governor by a radical anti-abortion group called Pro-Life Wisconsin. And that doesn't sound all that radical by its name, but Pro-Life Wisconsin is a group that opposes not only all abortions without exception, but they also oppose all forms of contraception as well. In their endorsement of then-candidate Scott Walker, the organization said, Pro-Life Wisconsin Victory Fund supports candidates for public office who demonstrate a commitment to protect each and every innocent human life in all circumstances. And at all stages of development, to be 100% pro-life is to know that a human life begins at fertilization and that there may never be a legal exception. The Republican fight against union rights in Wisconsin has drawn all the focus over the last year. But there is another Republican fight being waged in Wisconsin right now, the fight against access to abortion and birth control. And the next stage of that battle is now in the hands of Governor Scott Walker, a man who is two months away from a historic recall election that could remove him from office before the end of his first term.
0: dollars a month or even fifty five dollars a year members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself so for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com
7: We're talking with Jacob Sager Weinstein, who has written for The Onion, The New Yorker, McSweeney's, and he is the author of a brand new book that I cannot recommend enough called how not to kill your baby the revolutionary new way to raise perfect children get them into a good med school keep them safe from ever being sad about anything and who are we kidding it's a parody please welcome comedy writer extraordinaire jacob sager weinstein hello jacob oh hey david thanks for having me on now we are talking via skype you are in london i I am indeed the the posh oxbridge accent i'm
5: sure was a dead giveaway
7: Yes, and you are living and working in London. You are living my dream, and not just because your wife is beautiful. You have two kids, too, right? Yes, that's right. I do, absolutely. Or or as I call them, tax write-offs for whatever I make on this book. And you've had these two children, and you decided to write a book advising parents how not to kill their baby.
5: <laughs> That's right. Exactly. You know, I've, I've always had this theory that the uh, you should either, if you're doing anything, you should either read no books about it or like a dozen books, because if you just read one, you will believe that that is the only way to do it. Um, actually, when I was become, trying to become a screenwriter, I read a whole bunch of screenwriting books. And so when my wife was pregnant, I read, you know, a dozen different parenting books, and you, you sort of start to realize there are certain kinds of insanity that are common to each one and certain kinds of insanity that are unique to each one. This book was re- was written as sort of a, a satire of, of the, the sort of stupidities that I found in my research.
7: Well, you were also angry, and all great comedy writing comes from rage and despair. You're, well, you You, you, you said a- that,
5: you know. That's something you I actually thought about that while I was writing this book, because because you know we used to work together, on, and that's something you said to me early on that all comedy comes from anger. And I, I actually I don't agree with that. I think that's that's not always true. But this was the first thing that I wrote that really did come from anger. And what made you angry? Well, I I feel like you you are so vulnerable uh, when you have children, especially your first child, and there's this whole industry that is built up to exploit that that terror and vulnerability you feel for for profit. Um, so there's books that are, are written with the subtext of if you don't buy this book, your baby will die, or, or or not get into Harvard, which is just as bad. If you don't buy this product, your baby will suffer a concussion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it just makes me angry. I think there's there's certainly some books that are or, and some products that are made with genuine good intentions and are really helpful for parents but a lot of it really seems exploitative, and that, that kind of pissed me off.
7: Give me an example of what set you off.
5: Okay, well, so one of the things I read was a book called Healthy Sleep Habits, Happy Child, often recommended, uh, a lot of parents recommended it to me, and two things sort of made me angry about it. First of all, it's just badly written. It's like hard to understand what the author is saying half the time, and if you're sleep deprived, it, it might as well be random words. Um, what really makes me angry with hindsight is this, and I'll tell you why I say hindsight in a moment, It's, he has certain very dogmatic principles about sleep. So for example, he says, it doesn't count if your baby sleeps in the baby carriage or in the car. Not just, you know, it's a bad habit, try to get them to sleep at home. It doesn't count. He actually has something in his book and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if if you're out and your baby falls asleep in the carriage, then just tell yourself, well, I failed this time. Next time I'll do better. So, but at the time, you know, I'm the youngest kid. I've never been around babies. this is, this, is, this was our first. So for all I know, this is true. This is a sleep expert. I should, I should believe him. So I sort of taught, was talking to my wife about that. I read that passage. She is the oldest of four children. She's actually experienced real-life babies. So just, she just sort of rolled her eyes and told me that was not going to happen, that the baby was going to sleep in the car, the baby was going to sleep in the carriage. So sort of now that I've had two kids and I realize just how harmful and terrifying and misguided that advice is. I'm retroactively really angry, angry that he gave it, but even more angry that I actually sort of believed it for a little while.
7: And this is for the benefit of the parents and not the baby. The, the, the advice he's giving? or Yeah, sleep deprivation is really about having working parents who need the baby to sleep around their schedule and not the baby's schedule.
5: Well, that is that is a subtext you sometimes get. Um, And I sort of, you know, one of the things, by the way, the thing that angers me most of all of my whole parenting experience is something that does not come from books. It's when you tell an experienced parent that you're having a hard time sleeping, and they sort of chuckle and they say, Oh, you'll never get a good night's sleep again because like they have clearly forgotten what those first six months are like where you know there's like there's like one level of sleep deprivation where it's not safe for you to drive and there's even a level beyond that where it's not safe for your baby to go to the Hague because that level of sleep deprivation is a war crime and he will be prosecuted for it and I think parents sometimes forget that by the time your baby is like five you know he's waking you up at six in the morning but he's sleeping through the night But, but when it's Guantanamo style sleep deprivation it's just another matter entirely
7: right Right. It is incredible, not to trivialize people who actually do do damage to their kids, but it's amazing the number of people who don't do damage to their kids. Yes. It really yes. is. It does speak, When whenever I get cynical about humanity, I think of all the people who put up with so much crap from a newborn baby. And yes. there is something really beautiful and encouraging about our species because we we don't kill our babies we, we we put up with a lot from babies that if it were another human being in our home we would probably kill them.
5: Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I lived with my wife for many years before we had children. And if she had, you know, woken me up in the, at three in the morning and then pooped on me, it would have been the end of our relationship.
7: That's not why I heard about you, but go ahead.
5: <laughs> um, so, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I, there, there are advice books that I think have the right spirit. Famously, uh, Benjamin Spock starts off his book with, you know more than you think you do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great message to send to parents. But I think a lot of a lot of books are... I know more than you think you
7: do, give me money. Yeah, I mean, people have been raising babies for, I don't know, a couple million years without yes. reading a book about it.
5: Now, it's, it's important to note that, that that most babies who have ever been born, or at least who were, who were born for most of history before my book came along, are no longer alive. That's true. So, so you know, I mean, I think there is something to be said that, that had the Middle Ages had my book and other like it, people might still be alive thousands of years later.
7: So your book is a parody and you're selling fake items to the reader, how not to kill the baby. There's you have a baby seat with uh, a that has a bend greblet. What's a bend greblet? Well well one thing I should say the book is is lavishly illustrated. Uh, it
5: is um, that's an illustration of actually that's not a product that I'm selling. I'm sort of advising you on how to do that. Well you know a memory I have is when, when my daughter was born my wife is standing there holding her. The baby's crying. I'm trying to fit her into fit the car seat into the back seat of a taxi cab, uh, and it was just this incredibly stressful thing. So in the book, I talk about how you know, don't worry. It's, it's not as stressful as it seems, and I've got sort of a simple process for installing the, the child seat, which I can tell you, it's very simple. You adjust the height so the baby's head rests in the proper place. You tighten the straps, but do not tighten the straps. You do rotate the omelet. You tilt it so the baby's at the angle. You bend the greblet. Uh, counterclockwise in the southern hemisphere only. You rotate the from it, and then you as the mizzen mast. And, and then you're set. Um, <laughs> And then the other thing is, on the following page, I then have exactly the same instructions to to help women breastfeed.
7: Which a man should always be the one who advises a woman on how to breastfeed. Yes, and
5: and, and if possible, I would say based on my research, not only should a man advise women, he should do so in the most condescending uh, and insulting terms possible.
7: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Daryl Issa. And how (laughs) should a woman breastfeed?
5: Well, you know, that may seem intimidating, but it's actually it's very simple. What you do is... Uh, you bend the grablet. You fell the mizzen mast. You adjust the ba- height so the baby's head rests here. You tilt them at a forty-five degree angle and a counterclockwise in the southern hemisphere only, uh, and then you rotate the from and then you're set.
7: I see. Now that's interesting because I'm a man. I'm a man, and that makes me feel stupid. So imagine <laughs> how a woman must feel hearing that. Yes,
5: and that's only by the way. This is this is saying how to breastfeed. This is not even getting into the question of how long do you breastfeed? Do you breastfeed? You know, do you stop before the kid goes to college, after grad school? It's that in itself is a whole source of anxiety. And because it's a source of anxiety, it's a source of potential profit uh, for various experts selling
7: books. How happy should a kid be when they're growing up? (laughs)
5: Well, it depends if they have me. I'm the best dad ever. So Mm -hmm. I'd say
7: limitlessly. But for an
5: ordinary schlub, I think I think they're gonna be miserable sometimes. And I think that that part of what these books are selling is this idea of perfection—that if you do things right, your kid will always be perfectly happy. Which which is nice, but the the, the flip side of that is that if you if your kid is ever unhappy, it's because you've screwed up.
7: hmm Toilet training. Yes. Have you
5: mastered it yet? Uh, I, I have. I, I put my wee in the potty every time. I'm very proud of that.
7: Oh, you mean for my kids? Yes. What is the secret to toilet training?
5: Okay, well, um, you know, one thing that I think is very important when you're using words to sort of talk about your kids' private parts you have to speak sort of very casually with no tension because kids can sense tension. And if, if they sense you're sort of tense when you're talking about their genitals, they'll think there's something dirty or shameful and they'll withhold and they'll be constipated. So for God's sake, whatever you do, do not get stressed when you're discussing toilet training because you, you, can, you can screw them up forever if you are too stressed. So just relax. It's okay. Don't think about all that can go wrong. The <laughs> what, is the a- like-
7: what is the age at which a person should finish their toilet training?
5: Well, it, it's like chess. It can take minutes to learn, but a lifetime to master <laughs> I, I sat down the other day and I, I used the Greblets opening to, to, and I and, and I, it went disastrously. I should have known. In a public urinal, you never use the Greblets. I. It's just a, a
7: classic rookie error. What is the relationship between? Is, is the father necessary?
5: No, absolutely not. I mean, I, 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 From reading various books, I know that 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 evolution has ensured that the mother is a warm, nurturing presence, unless she goes back to work, in which case she, she's she's evil incarnate. And, and the father is basically a penis with legs. He's absolutely useless. Men can't nurture. Um, men basically would drop the baby on its head, left to their own devices. The one thing I've learned from these books is that if you speak to dads with lots of sports metaphor, then you can maybe get it through their thick skull, how to actually take care of the baby. So actually, what what I did is I I painted football lines on my baby so I know to hold her tight and not let gravity, which was the opposing lineman, knock her out of my arms. And Mm -hmm. then I
7: got it. Should the father be in the delivery room? And if so, what should a father know about birth and seeing the baby born?
5: The father should definitely be in the delivery room. If possible, he should be wearing blindfolds and earplugs. If it's not possible, and if he actually has to witness the miracle of life, I, I think the important thing for him to do is to be there to encourage the woman and especially to tell the woman to push. If you didn't tell the woman to push and, and the only motivation she had was another human being inside her uterus, then, then she would just sit there and do nothing. So what she really needs is somebody who actually does not have a uterus yelling in her ear to push. That that I highly recommend that technique.
7: I think you're absolutely right because I was yep. in the delivery room. And I think my wife would not have known to push if I didn't, uh, and to breathe also.
5: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You. I mean, you would not be surprised. This is why. This is why single motherhood is a problem because women women suffocate to death if the guy is not there to say breathe. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Sorry. Hold on a minute, honey. Breathe. <laughs> the, the kid is four years old now, but I just you
7: just can't be too careful. Now, what about pets? Because I always view children as pets. If you already have a human pet. Do you need another species in your house as a pet?
5: Well, this is actually a really interesting scientific question because uh, on the one hand, there's some evidence that early exposure to pets will help prevent allergies later in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, there's evidence that early exposure to pets will cause allergies later in life. So the key is to have a pet and not have a pet at the same time. Actually, one of the products I sell is the official How Not to Kill Your Baby's Schrodinger's Cat in a Box, which is simultaneously alive and dead at the same time. Uh, therefore, it takes care of both sides.
7: I- I'm going to buy that.
5: Now, now, do check your homeowner's insurance because sometimes it's invalidated by the presence of quantum paradoxes in the nursery. Mm-hmm. But uh, as long as it's not, you're good to go.
3: on The View, and she was asked about several different things, including her infidelity, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, And, you know, she just says people shouldn't uh, pay attention to these horrible bloggers. But she was also asked about contraception, and here's what she had to say.
1: A lot of the times people associate women's rights with liberals, right? And not Republican women. So how do you say, yes, we are here. Representing women, I'm in, I'm working right now for government. How do you put that out there in terms of Republicans? Versus All of Republicans? my policy is not based on a label. It's based on what I lived and what I know. Women don't care about. Contraception. They care about jobs and the economy and raising their families and all of those things.
3: And so we well, should they ne- care about contraception too. No.
1: But that's not the only thing they care about. No, the media I, wants to talk about contraception. But books, someone... and let's be clear, all we're saying is we don't want government to mandate
3: when we have to have it and when we don't. We want to be able to make that decision. We don't need government making that, that decision government. for us you know That
4: makes no sense.
3: Absolutely no sense at all. Like, and listen to what she's saying there. She's saying women just care about raising their babies. That's all they're good for. That's all they know how to do. They don't care about contraception. They don't want to take, you know, care of their bodies and make decisions for themselves. They just want to make sure their husbands make money and you know they fetch them the slippers when they come home. But
4: that's the least of her problems. It, it, she says there, you know, we just want the government to butt out of women's private decisions. What are you talking about? That's the democratic position. That's the liberal position. That's not the conservative position. So she flipped it on its head like, oh yeah, God, government, we gotta get them out of our private lives when it comes to contraception. Yeah, I totally agree. Deal. Okay. What are you talking? And she's like, oh, the media created this. No, the media didn't create this. Your presidential candidates created this when they said, hey, you know what? A contraception should not be covered if you're not only at a religious institution, but at any institution where an employer would disagree with the concept of contraception. So, the Democrats didn't introduce this issue, you introduced it. Your leadership, and including in Congress, and in fact, the Republicans passed that or, or argued for that blunt amendment and all voted for that amendment as part of a legislation in the Senate. So, it was your party that brought it up. And then finally, the core of the original statement women don't care about contraception.
3: Yeah, not at all, not at all.
4: Yeah, okay, you take away contraception from women and let's see if they care. Because 99% of women. Who are sexually active use contraception, including married women, including the ones that are fetching the slippers, mm-hmm. okay? And the ones that are married and not fetching slippers. And she's a governor, for Christ's sake.
1: By the way, Scott Walker, speaking of of uh, anti-woman policies, Scott Walker also quietly signed into law another anti-abortion bill and an abstinence v- bill on the eve of Easter. This is a ban on abortion coverage in policies obtained through a health insurance uh, exchange set to be created under Obamacare in 2014 if it is not struck down by the Supreme Court. The only exceptions would be rape, incest or medical necessity and also Lewis signing a bill that says teachers in school that offers sex education must stress abstinence as the only sure way to prevent pregnancy and stds and declare that sex education teachers do not have to even address contraception incredibly dangerous wow. incredibly dangerous to children women and men and and scott walker taking no prisoners just one after another signing these laws uh, these bills into law very quietly very systematically strange stuff what is he up to he could be recalled in the next two months and you know he 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 may be considering a presidential bid i mean during a, dis- a recent interview on the christian broadcasting network <laughs> he said that god's oh got a plan for us that may include bigger things than his current job yep you start talking about god <laughs>
0: you're probably and you start acting like rick santorum and you're if you're a republican you're well on your
1: way. if you're a republican and you start alluding to conversations with god about his plan for you and start going completely off the rails with conservative social policy. There's a very good chance running for president is somewhere in your future.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, uh, you know, I think
0: it seems like this guy is the exact same type of candidate that Rick Santorum is, or would be if he were running for president. You so, think? you know, I think when you take the religious stuff a little too
1: far, you end up hurting yourself. What about when you take it way too far? Uh, well, depends who who your constituency is, I guess. When the president talks to God, are the conversations brief or long? Does he ask to rape our women's rights and send poor farm kids off to die? Does God suggest an oil hack when the president talks to God? When the president talks to God, are the consonants all hard or soft? Is he resolute or down the line? Is every issue black or white? Does what God
2: say ever change His mind when the president talks to God? So last week in Georgia, women essentially uh, were—I uh, mean, basically um, put it in the same category as uh, women. Uh, excuse me, as livestock. You'll remember that. Um, Representative Terry England, in debating uh, this measure, the so-called fetal pain bill, compared pregnant women carrying stillborn fetuses to the cows and the pigs on his farm. Hell, we, we deliver stillborn peta- uh, fetuses from cows and pigs on our farm all the time. Why can't women do it? Uh let me let me quote him. If farmers have to quote deliver calves dead or alive then women carrying a dead fetus uh should have to carry it to term. And uh the Georgia House passed this uh, Senate approved bill Thursday night of last week that criminalizes abortion after 20 weeks. HB 954 excludes a woman's quote emotional or mental condition which means women suffering from mental illness would also be forced to carry a pregnancy to term the only exemption uh, provided by this bill is an exemption for medically futile pregnancies or those in which the woman's life or health is threatened uh... the medically futile though is uh, rather vague and um, because the fetus must be diagnosed with an irreversible chromosomal or congenital anomaly that is incompatible with sustaining life after birth. Ms. Magazine, as reported there, uh, anti choice la- uh, lawmakers, it's an item of faith that fetuses feel pain at 20 weeks, but scientists disagree. Those crazy, wacky scientists. Uh, scientists, um, all existing medical evidence have found that fetuses have not developed the neurological structures to feel pain until at least 25 weeks, and not likely until 28 weeks in the third trimester. This is also uh, contrary to Roe v. Wade, which allows for uh, abortion to be legal up to 24 weeks. So, uh, Georgia's gone forward with that.
3: Georgia.
6: here was strike one.
1: If the Democrats said we
4: had a war on caterpillars, and every mainstream media outlet talked about the fact that Republicans have a war on caterpillars, then we'd have problems with caterpillars. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is
1: it's a fiction.
6: The chairman of the Republican Party trying to say that the whole idea that Republicans had some sort of war on women was as fictitious as the idea that Republicans were waging a war on caterpillars. Uh, This was strike one. This was a swing and a miss from Reince Priebus, not only because his party has earned the war on women thing through all sorts of demonstrable stuff. Like restricting access to contraception and opposing equal pay for equal work and going hog wild against abortion rights. Not only because of the substance of it, but also because comparing women to caterpillars is not an awesome way to convince women how much respect you have for them. So that was, thank you, strike one. Uh, Then they gave it another shot not the chairman of the Republican Party, but the spokesman for the Republican Party, Sean Spicer. Remember that name, it's coming back. Uh, Mr. Spicer said the problem with the war on women idea was not the women part of the war on women phrase, but rather the war part of the war on women phrase. He said it was borderline unpatriotic for anybody to use war as a political metaphor. And yes, Mr. Spicer is the spokesman for the party of the Republican Party. That's their website right there, uh, headlining one of the many wars that they have declared concerning President Obama. In this case, the war on coal. So that was strike two. Uh, The next batter up to the plate was the top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell.
7: Talk about a manufactured issue, there is no issue. Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison and Kelly Yacht from New Hampshire and Susan Collins and Olympia Snow from Maine, I think would be the first to say, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, we don't see any, uh, any evidence of this.
6: The problem with rebutting the whole war on women, women thing this way, saying it's manufactured and these women that you're citing might agree with you on it, the problem with that is that these women that Mitch McConnell says agree with him on, in his view on this, uh, do not agree with him on this if you don 't view this
3: as an attack on a women on women, then you need to go home and you need to talk to your wives you need to go talk to your daughters ask them if they feel that this is an attack
6: so at this point we have uh... <clears throat> Three strikes, which under normal circumstances would mean the end. It would mean you're out, right? But, but the Republicans are still up there swinging away at this war on women issue, and they have to. I mean, they will lose the election with numbers this bad among women. This idea that Republicans are acting contrary to women's interests and women are therefore turning away from them in polls is not going away. So yesterday, the Republicans gave it yet another go. The Romney campaign convened a conference call to talk about how great a Mitt Romney presidency would be for women, uh, and the economy in particular, and how awful President Obama was for women. Uh, Their call on this subject did not go well. Our next question will come from Sam Stein with Huffington Post. Please go ahead.
2: Yeah, does uh, Governor Romney support the L.A.L.I. Better Act?
3: And we'll get back to you on that.
6: The Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was the first bill that President Obama signed into law as president. It guaranteed women access to the courts to sue if they were getting paid less than men for doing the same work. It's a really high profile thing. The Romney campaign apparently had not prepared an answer on whether or not their candidate supported that idea. So (sighs) that was strike four. But since that didn't exactly happen in private, that was, after all, on a press call that they themselves called. That was a call full of reporters hearing that. The Romney campaign knew they had to try to fix that problem they created for themselves. So they stepped back up to the plate. They put out a statement saying that Mitt Romney would not repeal the Fair Pay Act if he became president, even though they didn't say if he would have signed it himself. Then they rolled out a bunch of female Republican surrogates to reassure everybody that Mitt Romney supports fair pay. That, of course, constituted strike five, because those surrogates that the Romney campaign rolled out did not themselves vote for the Fair Pay Act. So they don't particularly support it either. Trust them. Here's the thing, though, this whole concept of whether or not the Republicans are waging a war on women, it is not an impressionistic thing. It's not a how do the girls feel about these guys kind of thing. The whole reason anybody has been talking about a Republican war on women is not because of any personal factors at work here. It's, it, it is, it's not because of language or who's being PC or not. It's because of what Republicans have pursued as a policy agenda. And the fair pay issue is a great one on which to talk about the difference between the parties. I mean, Mitt Romney says he doesn't want to talk about Republicans rolling back contraception or being super anti-abortion or all of these other issues that people have been complaining about in the war on women idea. He says he just wants to talk about women in an economic context. Well, here's a perfect case of a women's economic issue, equal pay, right? Women being able to sue if they are getting paid less than a man for doing the same work that that man is doing. You kind of can't can't get more pure if you're looking for a gender issue that is an economic issue, right? This is what Romney says he is specializing on. This is what his message of the week is. We still have no idea whether or not Mitt Romney supports that. He says he would not repeal the Fair Pay Act, but would he have signed it if he was president? Most Republicans voted against it. What should we read into the fact that the surrogates he's putting out to talk for him on this issue themselves voted no on the Fair Pay Act. Mr. Romney won the Wisconsin primary in part by cuddling up as close as he could possibly get to the embattled Republican governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Not only does Scott Walker apparently not support the equal pay for equal work concept, he overtly did just repeal Wisconsin's state level version of the Equal Pay Act. He repealed that law on the same day that he signed a pair of new restrictions on abortion rights in Wisconsin. This is not hypothetical stuff. This is not about whether or not somebody is using PC language or wearing the right color tie or showing up with enough women around them or even whether or not they're a woman themselves. This is policy. That's where the whole concept of the Republican war on women and the Republicans consequent problem with women in the polls has come from. And not recognizing that, not recognizing that it's substantive. It is about policy is I think why the Republicans keep striking out on this issue. They keep missing the point every time they try to address it. They keep making it worse. But today, that all turned around. Today, the Republicans finally got a pitch they could hit on this subject. It was not on policy. It was not on the substance of any of these issues that are being fought over here. So maybe that's why they thought it was perfect for them. A a Democratic strategist who does not work for the Obama campaign or the Democratic Party, who in fact works for CNN as a pundit, on CNN said this.
1: What you have is, is Mitt Romney running around the country saying, well, you know, my wife tells me that what women really care about are economic issues. And when I listen to my
6: wife, that's what I'm hearing. Guess what? His wife has actually never worked a day in her life. She's, she's never really dealt with the kinds of economic issues that a majority of the women in this country are facing in terms of how do we feed our kids? How do we send them to school? And, and, and how do we worry? And why do we worry about their future? Now, substantively, Mitt Romney does say that his advisor on women and the economy, his advisor on women's issues generally, is his wife. And so he technically brought her into it by claiming her as politically relevant, claiming that her experience, her expertise, her advice is what he is counting on to come up with his policy ideas and his perspective as a potential president. But no matter, the Louisville slugger was already making perfect Contact with this particular proverbial baseball. The Republicans knew they could finally get a hit in this political fight about women voters, uh, this fight that they have been losing so badly in recent weeks. So, after putting Ann Romney all over the TV machine, the Romney campaign then convened another conference call on women and the economy. But it was actually just another round of Romney surrogates condemning this pundit, Hillary Rosen, for what she said. One surrogate saying that in insulting Ann Romney this way, Hillary Rosen actually actually. actually spoke for what President Obama really felt about women. The Obama administration, everybody from the president's campaign manager, Jim Messina, to his chief strategist, David Axelrod, to his wife, Michelle Obama herself, they all responded immediately to condemn in no uncertain terms what Hillary Rosen had said on CNN. The Republican Party kept pressing its advantage, though, putting out this web banner ad trying to solicit donations as if President Obama had said this thing himself. Mitt Romney's chief strategist said that this one statement on CNN was the declaration of President Obama's kill and strategy for the entire campaign. The Republicans were so excited. So excited that they had this pitch to hit, that they have blown it up into something that has frankly clouded out all other domestic political news of the day. Even after Hillary Rosen apologized for her remarks, they are still working this thing. They are still trying to get more out of this. But in their excitement, they appear to be trying to turn what is probably a single, maybe a double into a home run. And in their excitement, they have screwed this one up too. Here's how. Um, This is the delightful and charming Twitter feed of a group that calls itself the Catholic League. I personally cannot figure out a way to erase from my mind the one time I was on TV with a guy from the Catholic League, and he told me on TV that gay people should apologize to straight people because of AIDS. No matter how how much I try, I can't figure out a way to forget that. So the Catholic League has always had a special place in my heart, and apparently I have, as well uh, in theirs. This is how the Catholic League greeted the publication of my book that came out a couple of weeks ago. The Times has a book review about the military written by an expert who never spent a day in uniform. But she is a lesbian, Rachel Maddow. (laughs) Seriously, really, yeah. This is what they're like, uh, and this is how they responded to the Hillary Rosen excitement in today's politics. This is what they wrote, lesbian dem Hillary Rosen tells Ann Romney she never worked a day in her life, unlike Rosen, who had to adopt kids, and raised five of her own. This is a thing now, attacking people for adopting children? I did not know this was a thing, but apparently this is a thing. Um, when this weird, super anti-gay, anti-adoption, right wing criticism of Hillary Rosen uh, started to inflect the politics of this. Uh, this thing that the Republicans thought was otherwise going their way. The Republican Party spokesman, remember Sean Spicer? Remember him? Sean Spicer weighed in, and frankly, he told these Catholic League guys where to go. He said, quote, the Catholic League should be encouraging adoption, not demeaning the parents who are blessed to raise these children, which is a very nice thing for Mr. Spicer to have said. And it is also a huge mess for Republican politics because the Republican Party, or at least the presumptive presidential nominee of the Republican Party, Mitt Romney, is adamantly opposed to gay people adopting children. So in criticizing the Catholic League for having said the nasty anti-gay thing about Hillary Rosen's adopted kids. Is the Republican Party now weighing in to say it's okay for gay people to adopt kids? Oh no, this was going so well, how did we get into this mess? When people started pointing out online that now the Republican Party spokesman is endorsing gay adoption rights, and that represents a real change for the party, then Sean Spicer had to backpedal away from what was otherwise supposed to be his noble anti-Catholic League thing. Mr. Spicer having to say, quote, this is not what I said. So right now, the Republican Party's position on this flap is that they do not believe that gay people should be allowed to adopt children. And they're very angry at the Catholic League for saying that gay people should not be allowed to adopt children. And now what they thought was their perfect issue about somebody having problematized Mitt Romney invoking his wife as his advisor on women in the economy, that whole thing that they thought they were going to win for the day has been sullied by these weird anti-gay politics that Republicans really have no idea what to say about. They had a solid single here and they tried to turn it into a home run, and now it's all falling apart. The the Romney campaign was already in this mess on on gay politics anyway. Yesterday, a group called the National Organization for Marriage, Uh, its initials are NOM. Uh, pronounced nom nom nom, the National Organization for Marriage endorsed Mitt Romney for president just hours after Rick Santorum dropped out of the race. Uh, You may remember NOM is the group that photoshopped a giant pro-Obama crowd into a photo of one of their own rallies to make it seem like all of these super enthusiastic people were there supporting an anti-gay group, uh, which they were not. You may also remember them from the leaked memos showing their strategy to try to turn African-Americans and gay people against each other, to try to stoke anti-gay animus in the black community in order to help them get their way on anti-gay policies. Um, Their endorsement for Mr. Romney led to immediate calls for Mr. Romney to reject that endorsement because of Nam's involvement in some extreme politics. But Mr. Romney is on the record as having given Nam a $10,000 donation. He also signed a pledge committing himself as president to supporting a constitutional amendment to the United States the United States Constitution um, uh, to ban gay marriage. Uh, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, including promising to appoint anti-gay judges. So, so it doesn't seem likely that Mitt Romney is going to turn down their endorsements since she has supported this group so much in the past. He has made it clear that even if once upon a time, back in Massachusetts, he said he would run to the left of Ted Kennedy on gay rights, he has made clear that he's not that Mitt Romney anymore. Now he is a pretty hardcore anti-gay Republican, and that is also a mess for him. I mean, this weekend the New York Times Sunday Magazine feature, which is great, um, is about the four Republican state senators, Republicans, who flipped positions on this issue, flipped to support same sex marriage rights in New York and thereby got those rights passed and signed into law in New York. Uh, The author of that piece, Bill Keller is gonna be joining us in just a moment to talk about what's happened to those Republican state senators since they made that momentous decision. Uh, In New Hampshire, a nom 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 supported effort to repeal same sex marriage rights there in in, in the hugely Republican dominated New Hampshire legislature failed even though the anti-gay marriage people guaranteed that that repeal would pass. Not only did Democrats in New Hampshire refuse to repeal gay rights, but Republicans did too, by a huge margin. The Republican Party is definitely still anti-gay, broadly speaking, but it is sprinting in the other direction. Politico.com front paging a story today about how three of Mr. Romney's top donors, guys who have been writing him seven figure checks already, are also major supporters of same sex marriage rights. So yeah, maybe Mitt Romney has a billionaire to spare, but three of the hedge fund zillionaires who have given him more money than almost anybody are very pro gay marriage rights. And so Mitt Romney has wanted to seem like he's to the left of Ted Kennedy on gay rights. And he's also pledging to change the US Constitution to block gay rights. And he's writing $10,000 checks to groups fighting against gay rights in the states. And even in Republican dominated states, those groups are losing their fight. Because not only the country, but even Republicans cannot feel safe politically anymore being all that anti-gay. The Republican Party spokesman is horrified by the Catholic League being so anti-gay in tone. But he has to clarify that he's not so horrified on the Catholic League being so anti-gay in substance. I mean, this is a mess. Gay rights and Republican politics right now are a mess. At least they are a minefield if you are trying to get across this issue. If Mitt Romney really does want to pivot from the hardcore right wing Republican primary to the general election. Rejecting that endorsement from Nam, from the super-rabidly anti-gay marriage people, that would be a great way to make that pivot, right? Can he do that? Even what should have been a simple base hit today with this Hillary Rosen comment, even what should have been a base hit for them ended up getting all fouled up when this other political mess (laughs) intruded on the war on women mess, right? And it seems like they still haven't figured out a way to win. Honestly, if I were being paid to advise Mitt Romney on this subject, I have no idea what my advice would be. It's the most complicated and most unpredictable issue right now within the Republican Party.
0: Thanks for listening everyone. If you would like to leave a comment, question or an activist call to action to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So, if you've been listening just for the past few weeks or a couple of months, you'll have heard that there have been some really interesting conversations going on in this this last part of the show between my commentaries and people calling in with voicemails. And you know, we've been talking about oppression and communication and and uh, just really great stuff. And there's been really great uh, reactions uh, from people that I've gotten, you know, by email or, or elsewhere saying that these conversations have, you know, because we're really like diving into complicated issues that that take new perspectives to really dissect, that it, it's been causing people to reevaluate how they think about their lives and their place in the world and all of these great things. So so I, I, I'm really happy with the turn the show has been taking in this direction of of you know taking time over the course of multiple episodes to really you know rather than trying to simplify an issue so that we can all sort of have a, a cursory understanding of it and then move on we've really been trying to complicate issues and dive way down into them so that so that we get a you know really uh, much deeper understanding and so today i want to start what what could very well turn out to be an absolutely epic three-part commentary on on three seemingly separate issues that you, you may very well have heard of all of them. And, and they don't seem to be connected except for uh, there is a thread, a very strong thread, I believe that that connects all three. and that's what we're going to be focusing on. And so today I'm going to start with uh, with the first of, of three topics to talk about and um, and the conversation will go from there and it's gonna be amazing. I can just I can feel it. so so today I want to talk about the episode of this American life that was retracted. and I, I believe that it was the only episode of this American life. Ever to be retracted, and uh, so, so this American Life, if you don't know, it's you know one of the best radio shows on the planet, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And on uh, on January sixth, two thousand twelve, they originally aired an episode called "Mr. Daisy and the Apple Factory," and you may very well have heard of it because it, it became almost instantly one of their most popular shows of all time. And and so this guy, Mike Daisy. Is a monologist. His job is to tell, you know, just give monologues, tell stories. He, you know, has albums that he sells, uh, you know, on iTunes or, or elsewhere, and um, and he and he does live stage shows. And so, in this in in this live stage stage show that he's been doing since since about two thousand ten, I believe, he tells the story of how he is an absolute Apple Apple computer aficionado. Loves Apple and, and their products. Until the day that he has this sort of epiphany and he realizes that these these sort of, you know, magical uh, objects that, that he loves so much are made by people. And, you know, they're not made by, like, other magical machines somewhere that we don't have to think about it. They're made by actual human beings in a factory very much by hand. They're actually made by hand uh, as, as often as, as robots are, are brought in to, to do all of those things. So... So he has this sort of realization, and so he wants to go to China and meet these people who make the devices that he loves so much. And the monologue that he tells on, on on Broadway is the story of his trip to China. And producers of This American Life, who are based in New York, saw his show on Broadway, liked it so much that they asked him to do a version of it for the radio, and that became the you know episode 454. Uh, aired January 6th, Mr. Daisy and the Apple Factory. And so, <laughs> skip skip ahead a couple of months to March 16th, 2012. This American Life aired a, a second episode about this story called Retraction. And they spend an, the entire hour of their show talking about why they had to retract the original story. And so, Before I get into these details, let me be clear that what I am doing is not journalism So before you start like quoting me Double-check the original sources because I I got a couple of notes. I'm working from here but a lot of it is is from memory and because my point Has much less to do with the the details of the story and and you know much more to do with a broader overarching issue with this so so in Mike Daisy's original story, he he says lots of things that are true in essence, but false in reality. And so what I mean by that are there are a few examples I'll use. I think there are more. But uh he he says that he meets underaged workers at in, in the Apple factories in China. He says that he meets uh Workers who were poisoned by the process uh, the manufacturing process of, of putting iPads together and uh, or and iphones and, and the rest uh, and and he says that he meets a person whose hand has been mangled by machinery while putting together uh, apple products and what what is wrong about each of these is that uh, th- this was found out by a, a a journalist, and I believe an NPR uh, reporter, who wondered about some of these details, and then went and did his own research and, and found them to be to be wrong. So, some so the, the the people who he said he met that were underaged, I believe that he never really found out uh, accurately what their age was, and he was mostly giving them an age based on how long how young they looked which, you know, is a little fishy, the the people who were poisoned, he read articles. There were news reports of people being poisoned, but he didn't actually meet those people. So in his story, the way he tells it, he says that he meets these people and talks with them, but in reality, he did not. And, and then finally, the guy who had his hand mangled, that, I, I believe there's no record of that, of that happening. And, um, and so between the NPR reporter who kind of uncovered these things and his, uh, Mike Daisy's Chinese interpreter, that is where a lot of these, uh, details are, are, are coming from that this American life did not do their due diligence to confirm all of these stories with Mike Daisy's, uh, interpreter until after, that until after the original story aired, and then they had to run the retraction based on that. So, propaganda has such a negative connotation to it. Isn't you know I I am not using the word propaganda in in the way you know the Nazis would use the word propaganda, but propaganda is about getting a message out and influencing populations of people to believe that message. And so there are some tenets of propaganda that. Hold true because they tap into people's psychology and so so one of those tenants is is for there to be a bridge character that can help you empathize with with others who you don't see yourself as a part of so so in this case, you know to get Americans to care about Chinese workers, Mike Daisy himself is the bridge character he's you know a big white American guy, and he cares passionately about these Chinese workers, and because he cares, that means that we have a better chance of tapping into that emotion through him. So in his passion to get the story out and get people to be emotional about it and then take action based on those emotions, he tells his story in a way that he gets greater truths across to his audience by taking theatrical license and saying things that aren't true. So it's maddening because in the end, he ends up hurting his own case. When, uh, you know, when it when it comes out that he said things that weren't true, you know, they're minor things, you know, because, uh, of course, people have been mangled. Of course, people have been poisoned. Uh, of course, there are some underage workers. And, but when he says things that are true in essence, but False in reality, that opens the door wide for critics to say, oh, see, I knew he was lying. We shouldn't regulate Apple or, you know, Apple shouldn't have, to, you know, they, they don't have to make any changes because everything's going fine because this guy said things weren't fine, but he was lying. And so in the retraction episode that This American Life posted, uh, they, they interviewed Daisy and and I'm quoting from an article written about the retraction and, and so Schmitz is the uh, journalist who realized that some of these things weren't true, and Kathy is Mike Daisy's original interpreter. And so referring to the interview with Ira Glass being confronted with having uh, said things that weren't true on the radio, this is from the article, Daisy never flat out admits to lying. Instead, he says that lots of the facts... Refuted by Schmitz and Kathy, including the underage workers and the man with the deformed hand, are true in a, quote, theatrical context, unquote. And then this is directly from the show himself, uh, you know, the show itself. This is what Mike said on the show. He says... And everything I have done in making this monologue for the theater has been toward that end, to make people care. I'm not going to say that I didn't take a few shortcuts in my passion to be heard, but I stand behind my work. My mistake, the mistake that I truly regret, is that I had it on your show as journalism, and it's not journalism, it's theater. And so he hurts his own case, he hurts his own credibility and and everything because he cared so passionately about the message that he was blinded to what the response would be if it was discovered that he said things that weren't true because they because people feel misled, they feel betrayed because they wanted to care about these things and and, and so even if they're true in essence, you don't want to be lied to in any context uh while that message is, is coming across. And so This story is gonna continue as I do my commentaries in future episodes, but I wanna read a couple of sentences that were not written about the Mike Daisy story. I am repurposing and reinterpreting these sentences, and I'm gonna read these again in the next two episodes because this is what it comes down to for me. And so, so again, this is not about Mike Daisy, but it might as well be. And so, uh, so the first word in this, in, in, as I begin, is blank. So interpret it as I'm referring to Mike Daisy's story, even though the original author of these sentences was referring to something that will be talked about in future episodes of this, uh, with this commentary. So this, this is what it says. Blank will start a lot of good conversations. It might awaken compassion and concern. It will do good. But it will also start a lot of overly simplistic conversations. It is likely to inspire people to adopt inadequate solutions out of panic and expediency. It will do harm. So keep that in mind. We'll be uh, coming back to this as this commentary continues in the next uh, couple of episodes. Please come back and hear those. For now, I just want to thank a couple of members, as I always do. Sharon C. signed up for a uh, leftist yearly membership back on July 24th of last year. And Tiffany O. signed up for a a, a leftist monthly membership on August 1st and has stuck with the show since then. So huge thanks to Sharon and Tiffany and all of the members and donors who uh, helped keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Spread the word of individual clips through your social networks that you particularly like.
5: But it's now black and white Cause you took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out any open door This is not my life
6: a fun farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fun. Fond...